Indeed, oh God, that is the desire of so many of us. We have discovered the great mistake of drifting far away from you and a path of righteousness. Some of us um, still are living out the consequences of choosing to disobey. And uh, the distance that we put between us and you was a distance that did nothing but harm us. When we finally recognized that there was a distance, we discovered also that it was not you who moved, it was us. And so we come in the name of Christ Jesus the Lord to confess our sin, to give voice to our sorrow over our choices that were indeed disobedient. And Father, knowing you as the chief joy, it is only damaging to us when we move from you. And so I pray, Heavenly Father, that as we've sung, that your spirit might draw us close to thee. Might we live out the rest of our days close to thee. Might we enjoy a period of worship this morning where we sense that we are close to thee. Father, there is so much enticement that is all around us. Sin is attractive. If it weren't attractive, oh God, we might not be tempted, but we are. And the world and the flesh and the devil wage war against our souls. And we know that the only safe place to be is right smack dab in the center of your will for us. So, Father, we come as your people again this morning to discover just a little more about that. We've come to be with your people so that we might discover again that we're not alone. We've come, O oh God, to sing praises because it is right and good and healthy to do so. We've come to give because, Father, we have so much. And we want to state by our giving that we trust you. And not only that, that we're willing to sacrifice uh, another bit of creature comfort so that the gospel can be broadcast. Father, we as your people are particularly thankful this morning. Whether or not we voted for the man who won on Tuesday is not the issue. The issue is that it seemed that in our country, values were more important than we thought. That things that are so dear to us, like marriage and family, really um, received a, a statement of support. And we're glad, oh God. Things like abortion, that is such a wickedness, such a... A cruel murder, that was, was denounced by so many. And so, Father, not, not that that makes this a Christian nation, but we do pray, Father, that you will spare this nation as the church tries to get her act together and take the gospel from, from one end of this country to the other and then from pole to pole. Oh God, 
by the power of your Holy Spirit, inspire the church to be all that she is called to be. Nothing is more beautiful than your people when she is being what she was intended to be. So, Father, where we have failed as a church, grant us forgiveness and grant us a fresh supply of grace that we might get about the work of contributing to the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have promised us that while we do that, you will be with us always. We love you. We are sorry we love you so little. Might today be the beginning of more love to the Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them. This won't be hard to find. If you can find the front page of the text of the Scriptures, you're there. And um, I have even memorized my text. It's pretty simple. It is the first verse of the first chapter of the first book. And it simply states this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, that endures forever. Folks, it's time to begin a new book study. I, um, I do preach on topics, and I enjoy preaching on topics. Um, I try to save them for, for special times in the church season. And, and for me, most often that occurs in the summers, for instance, you might recall, I hope you recall, that we spent all summer looking at the, uh, the topic of self-worth this past summer. But the staple of this pulpit is, and, and evermore should be, working through a book of the Bible. I, I prayed for months uh, as to what God would have me do next after we completed Acts back in May. And um, it seems to me that God has given me permission to use the book of Genesis as our next book of study. Now, let, let me make something abundantly clear. I'm not going to do this verse by verse or even section by section, paragraph by paragraph. And the reason I'm not going to do it that way, folks, is because I'm afraid that were I to do it like that, it would uh, stretch out to a, a multi-year thing and somewhere about uh, 10 months, 12 months into it, I would lose you. I would lose it. You would lose interest and, and that would defeat our purpose. And so what I'm going to do is preach through this book thematically. That is, um, I'm going to choose what I hope will be most of the of the great themes of this book. And there are some great ones in here, ladies and gentlemen. And I hope to to get to most all of them, if not all of them. And I'm, I'm excited to get to them. But sometimes they won't even be in order. They won't even be in sequence. 
We might do chapter 2 after chapter 10, something like that. But we're going we're gonna to look at themes in the book of, um, of Genesis, and that'll take us a year or so. Um, I, I can tell you this, that one of the reasons that I have shied away from this book in the past, I have never preached through the book of Genesis. I've been in the ministry almost 30 years. It will be 30 years next summer. And, and I have never preached through the book of, um, of Genesis. And the reason that I haven't is that if you preach through the book of Genesis, that means that the first thing that you face, the first ten words of the book, the first verse of the book that I've just quoted, drags you into an emotionally charged issue. If it's not emotionally charged for you, it's emotionally charged for me. And that, of course, is the issue of creation versus evolution. The last time I did that, that is, um, uh, addressed this subject, I did it in 1999 on Wednesday nights, on nine Wednesday nights. And I found myself furious. So much so, in fact, that somebody came up to me in the midst of that series and she looked at me and she said, who are you angry at? And um, she was right. I was angry. And, and, and I, maybe I still am. But... Um, I am going to try, as God grants grace, to rein in all of those emotions because the anger of man is not going to produce the righteousness of God. But uh, to answer her question, I hate to be lied to. Don't you? And I want you to know that evolution has lied to us. And the consequences of those lies have ruined many a soul, ladies and gentlemen. Philip Johnson, who is um, an attorney, uh, he teaches uh, law at, at Berkeley. He's written a couple of books on the subject and Darwin on Trial, for instance, perhaps um, you've seen it or read it. He in that book says that Darwinism functions as the central cosmological myth of modern culture. Darwinism functions as the central cosmological myth of the modern culture. I couldn't agree more, ladies and gentlemen. It is the central cosmological myth. Folks, if I could avoid, avoid this debate, I would. But the science class of every public school won't allow me. I, we have children who are taking AP biology in a local high school, being taught nothing but evolution. Um, in the high school across the street, I got a hold of their biology books. I looked at them. Um, two of them. 
contain cosmological myth. And even pictures that are known to be falsified. If I could avoid this debate, I could, I would. I, I have sought to keep this, to keep this out of the Sunday morning pulpit. But um, if we're going to study the book of Genesis, ladies and gentlemen, I can run, but I cannot hide. Part of my reluctance to bring this to the pulpit is my concern about you. My concern that as I do this, what I'm going to, the, the result is going to be that I'm going to set up in your minds a, a kind of an us versus them uh, mentality. And gang, I, that's the last thing that we need is an us versus them. I, I want to remind you that the them, uh, many of whom are fine, well-meaning people who simply uh, believe what they were taught in their high school and college biology classes, the them are people that we're trying to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ in many occasions. But I, I find myself somewhat impaled on the horns of a dilemma. Whereas I, I do not in any way want to create animosities and, and um, unnecessary warfares, the other horn of the dilemma is that ideas have consequences. And, and ladies and gentlemen, the consequences of this idea are, are they're hard to, to measure. There are so many of them. But I do know that love always wins in the end. And so uh, the thing that I want to try, I, I'll just warn you against it, and, and maybe you can pray through it as I have. The last thing that we need is, is an us versus them. What, I, what I'm hoping is in this brief study um, that you'll get some fresh ideas. Fresh ideas about who God is and fresh ideas about how we can reach those who do not yet know him. I'll be as brief as I know how to be. I think that's going to mean three Sundays this morning and then the 21st and the 28th. Next Sunday is, is communion. And I, I just didn't feel right about taking this when we're going to celebrate the memorial about Christ's death. So I, I've, um, I've crunched it all down into three instead of the originally planned four. But I can tell you that uh, it's down from nine from five years ago. So I'm going to try to do it as quickly as I can and, and move on to some um, marvelous themes contained in the book of Genesis. But it's not, it is not biblically or ethically, it has no integrity to announce that we're going to study the book of Genesis and seek to avoid this issue. So I won't. Um, I, I, I don't feel that it's necessary to avoid it academically or intellectually. But I, my concern 
is that we respond rightly to this information. I want you to know why I think the Bible teaches a six, 24-hour day creationism. I won't be able to tell you everything. Um, there are things, ladies and gentlemen, that we just don't have time to include um, about how much lunar dust was found on the moon. We don't, we don't have time for all that. Um, but I hope to at least show you the enormity of the issues. That is, should you choose to to reject a six-day creationism? Because, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not sure that you've thought through the consequences of that position. And what I want to do this morning uh, is, um, is begin to show you the consequences. Part of this little three-week series is going to be a cursory look at evolution. We'll, we'll uh, get to the, uh, the, the biology and the zoology and the paleontology and the microbiology. We'll get to that. But it's going to be on the 21st and the 28th. This morning what I want to do is simply lay a foundation. A foundation about the, uh, the, the philosophical base that uh, lies underneath uh, the whole teaching of evolution. Because, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you can see that according to the first ten verses of the Bible, excuse me, the ten, first ten words of the Bible, there is a collision course that this book is on with the theory of evolution. Thanks to evolution, ladies and gentlemen, naturalism is now the dominant religious philosophy of the 21st century. If you don't know what naturalism is, then listen. I'm going to try to define it for you. Naturalism is the view that every law and every force operating in this universe is natural rather than moral, spiritual, or supernatural. Naturalism, I'll give you another shot at it. Naturalism is the belief that nature is a closed system of causes and effects that cannot be affected by outside factors like God. It is a closed system that does not permit any influences from outside. Some of you geologists may remember Lyell's uniformitarianism. Great example of naturalistic philosophy. It is a philosophical presupposition. If, you, if that's too big a word for you, ladies and gentlemen, it is, the, it is what I presuppose when I enter every debate. That's what a presupposition is. Naturalism is a philosophical presupposition. It is a starting point. And the starting point of naturalism is no God. Naturalism is inherently antitheistic, rejecting the very idea of a personal God. 
Everything in the universe has a natural cause and a natural explanation. The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. That was Carl Sagan's trademark opening line to his famous TV show, Cosmos. It opened with a statement of naturalism, that the cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. That is a classic summary, ladies and gentlemen, of philosophical, metaphysical naturalism. The ultimate foundation of Darwinism is not empirical scientific data. Did you hear me? I said that the ultimate foundation for Darwinism is not scientific, empirical data. The foundation is metaphysical naturalism. May I add, the scientific evidence is positively opposed to the tenets of Darwinism. Ladies and gentlemen, Darwinism is empirically bankrupt. It is pseudoscience. I think most people believe that there is an enormous amount of, of um, empirical data um, supporting the general theory of evolution. That is, in fact, an illusion. A myth. There has not been one discovery since 1859. 1859, of course, was the, the year in which Darwin uh, published his famous The Origin of the Species. There has not been one discovery supporting the general theory of evolution or macroevolution. And we'll talk about macro versus micro, but that'll be on the 21st. But there has not been one piece of supporting empirical data for the general theory of evolution known as macroevolution. Anti-theistic naturalism is the inviolable starting point of all research and teaching in academic circles. And that makes me angry. Statements like this are made. Removing evolution from a required science curriculum is a bit like removing verbs from the English curriculum. Or this. Equal time for creation in biology classes is like equal time for the theory that it is the stork that brings babies. Or this. This is from Richard Dawkins, whose book, The Blind Watchmaker, is, is um, 
one of the statements of evolutionary science. Richard Dawkins says this. He says it about me. I, I, I assume he says it about a lot of you, but that's your, that's your call. He says this. A case could be made that faith, that faith is one of the world's great evils, comparable to the smallpox virus, but harder to eradicate. That's what you are. You're just a bunch of smallpox viruses. Now, guys, having defined, at least I hope, having defined naturalism for you, let me show you where it's going to take you. I, I want you to see the, the consequences of objecting and leaving a six-day creationism. I, I hope that um, it will explain, at least in part, I'll do more of that on the 21st and 28th. I hope it will explain why I'm such an ardent opponent of evolutionary science or naturalism. I have two things that, that I want you to see that are, that are the ramifications. First, woven into the very fabric of naturalism is the belief that man is nothing special. Given the incomprehensible vastness of the universe and the, and the impersonality of it all, how could humanity possibly be important? Carl Sagan concluded that our race was not significant at all. In December of 1996, less than three weeks before he died, he was interviewed by Ted Koppel on Nightline, and uh, Sagan knew he was dying, and, and Koppel asked him, Dr. Sagan, do you have any pearls of wisdom that you would like to give to the human race? And this is what he said. We live on a hunk of rock and metal that circles a humdrum star that is one of 400 billion other stars that make up the Milky Way galaxy, which is one of billions of other galaxies which make up a universe which may be one of a very large number, perhaps an infinite number of other universes. That is a perspective on human life and our, that our culture, on our culture that is well worth pondering. In a book by the same author, Carl Sagan, uh, that was published towards the end of, this, end of his life, Sagan wrote this. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity... In all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Man is the result of a purposeless and natural process that did not have him in mind. My friends, an inescapable consequence of naturalism is that you are an accident and... Um, as an accident, you have very little, if any, value at all. Might I point out that these are the same people who are telling us that the number one need that we have as individuals is to get a high self-esteem. Gang, the logical consequence of naturalism 
is to abandon all hope for a meaningful existence. And then it leaves us, it gives rise to a spiritual barrenness. Evolutionary theory leads inexorably to a godless, purposeless world. In a word, it leaves us with despair. That's one of the consequences of being a naturalist. Secondly, because God is eliminated, there is absolutely no basis for anything remotely resembling some kind of moral or ethical beauty. Survival of the fittest is the governing law of the universe, according to evolutionary science. You know that. Survival of the fittest is the central teaching of evolution. Now, ladies and gentlemen, do you know where that takes you? Do you know where that premise will take you? Well, indeed, the, uh, the rise of naturalism has meant a moral catastrophe for modern society. Yes. But the most frightening part, ladies and gentlemen, is... The recognition that the most damaging ideologies of the 19th and 20th century were all rooted in Darwinism. The most damaging philosophies of the 20th century, 19th and 20th, are all rooted in Darwinism. One of Darwin's earliest champions is a man by the name of Thomas Huxley. Thomas Huxley was called Darwin's bulldog. Uh, his grandson, Julian Huxley, is still spouting the same thing his great-grandfather did. But in a lecture given in 1893, he argued, that is, uh, Thomas Huxley argued, now listen, that evolution and ethics are incompatible. This is what he wrote, and I quote, the practice of that which is ethically best, what we would call goodness or virtue, involves a course of conduct which in all respects is opposed to that which leads to success in the cosmic struggle for existence. Do you understand? Any pursuit of moral beauty, goodness or virtue, is absolutely contradictory to the fundamental premise of Darwinism. That being the survival of the fittest. In fact, ethics, that evolution and ethics are incompatible. Other philosophers who incorporated Darwin's ideas, were quick to understand what Huxley meant. Uh, conceiving of new philosophies that 
that set the stage, ladies and gentlemen, for the amorality and genocide that characterized so much of the 20th century. For instance, Karl Marx self-consciously followed Darwin in the devising of his economic and social theories. He inscribed a copy of his book, Das Kapital. He inscribed a book as a gift to Darwin, and on the inside he wrote, from a devoted admirer. He referred to the origin of the species as, and I quote, the book which, which contains the basis in natural history for our view. Do you understand what the founder of communism is stating? He is stating that the, this book contains the basis in natural history for all of my views. And thus, communism. Herbert Spencer's philosophy of social Darwinism. Ever heard of him? Ever heard of social Darwinism? Spencer applied the doctrines of evolution and the survival of the fittest to human societies. Spencer argued that if nature itself has determined that the strong survive and the weak perish, if that's what nature has dictated, then that rule should govern society as well. Now listen. That means that racial and class distinctions simply reflect nature's way. There is, therefore, because of evolutionary philosophical thought, there is no transcendent moral reason to be sympathetic to the struggle of disadvantaged classes. Those of you who plead for social justice and are concerned about the plight of the disenfranchised and the, and the marginalized, forget it. Because the fundamental principle governing all of societies is the survival of the fittest. That means that the elimination of the weak is simply a part of the evolutionary process. And society will actually be improved by recognizing the superiority of the dominant classes and encouraging their ascendancy. The racialism of writers like Ernest Hackle, who taught that the African races were incapable of culture or higher mental development. That's all rooted in Darwinism, ladies and gentlemen. Frederick Nietzsche. You ever heard of him? Nietzsche's philosophy, which laid the foundation for the Nazi movement, was based on the theory of evolution. Nietzsche proposed that there was to be this new master class of men called supermen. The German word, I wish I could pronounce it, but, but I, I don't think I can. Um, Ubermanschen. It means supermen. And that whole new race required the elimination of the weak. 
Thus, Hitler was right. The survival of the fittest, which lies at the very heart of Darwinism, has provided the philosophical base for numerous genocides, not just Hitler's. Can you see, ladies and gentlemen, that the arguments that we're making here are, are critical, not just for church use. Evolution is destructive to the very fabric of society. The moral catastrophe that has disfigured our society is directly traceable to Darwinism and the rejection of the early chapters of Genesis. Now, guys, let me, let me try to bring this to a close. Because I want to give you a, first of all, I want to mention, a, give you just a reality check. I want you to know in two other sermons, I can't give you enough information to answer all of your questions. But I can give you enough to ease your mind. And I want you to know that's not very hard at all. I'm not that bright. But giving you enough to calm you about these issues is not that difficult. I, I hope that you will never again be intimidated by some kind of evolutionary science. Now let me tell you what's at stake. For us, I don't think this is an overstatement, everything. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, Jesus demonstrates himself to be a creationist. Check it out. It's also found in numerous places in the book of Acts. And if Jesus didn't know what he was talking about, ladies and gentlemen, he has no credibility. Basically, what's at stake? Is this. It's not just the first chapters of Genesis, ladies and gentlemen, that gives you the problem. Because Jesus states in the New Testament that he believed that God created Adam and Eve in the garden, all that business. The author of Acts and the speakers in the book of Acts, they go even further than Jesus did. So for us, what's at stake? Everything. Everything, ladies and gentlemen. Everything that we believe about our salvation, everything that we believe about truth, it's all at stake. It's all on the line. Now... What's at stake for them? Well, gang, uh, in, uh, during the Second World War, Winston Churchill paid a visit to the States in the middle of the war, 1943, and he spoke at Harvard. And Churchill said this, The empires of the future will be empires of the mind. Not empires of these political and military juggernauts. The empires of the future will be the empires of the mind. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, what we are in is a battle for the minds of men. 
What's at stake for us? Everything. What's at stake for them? Everything. Let me read you a couple of quotes. Sir Arthur Keith. Evolution is unproved and unprovable. By the way, this is an advocate. Evolution is unproved and unprovable. We believe it only because the alternative is special creation, which is unthinkable. End of quote. Here's another quote from Thomas Huxley. It is clear that the doctrine of evolution, listen, is directly antagonistic to that of creation. Evolution, if consistently accepted, makes it impossible to believe the Bible. I didn't say that. A proponent of evolution said that. He said that if consistently accepted, it is impossible for you to believe that book that's in your laps. Professor D.M.S. Watson. Evolution itself is accepted by zoologists not because it has been observed to occur or can be proved by logically coherent evidence, but because the only alternative, special creation, is clearly incredible. You know, ladies and gentlemen, to listen to these fellows, one of the strongest cases for the embracing of evolution is their distaste for the alternative. You know, one of the... um, the things that I observed in, in my reading, and, and, um, and I've done a good deal. I stacked it up before you over here if you wanted to see it. But uh, one of the observations that I've made is that the very persons who insist upon keeping religion and science separate are eager to use their science as a basis for pronouncements about religion. The literature of Darwinism is full of anti-theistic conclusions such as the universe is not designed and has no purpose and that we as humans are the product of blind natural processes that care nothing about us. And what's more, those statements are presented not as personal opinions, but as the illogical implications of evolutionary science. My friends, Darwinists do not want the separation of church and state. They want the elimination of church. One of the factors that makes evolutionary science seem a whole lot more like a religion than anything else is the obvious zeal on the part of Darwinists to evangelize the world by insisting that even non-scientists accept the truth of their theory as a matter of moral obligation. Richard Dawkins is the Oxford zoologist that I quoted earlier, and one of the most influential figures in evolutionary science is unabashedly explicit about the religious side of Darwinism. In his book, The Blind Watchmaker, published in 1986, at one level is about biology, but at a more fundamental level, it is a sustained argument for atheism. Listen, this is a quote, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. And about those of us who refuse to believe in evolution, Dawkins can scarcely contain his fury. He says, and I quote, listen, it is absolutely safe to say 
that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, listen, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. By the way, he goes on to explain that what he dislikes particularly about creationists is that they are very intolerant. Robert Ingersoll, who died in 1899, he hated particularly Christian preachers. But um, he believed that Darwinism had, had destroyed the credibility of Christianity and that it was only a matter of time before it would be swept away by this increasingly scientific culture that recognized Christianity as nothing more than an ignorant superstition. In his book published in 1890, uh, he includes this scathing attack on the intellectual shallowness of Christian preachers. He says this, This century will be called Darwin's century. It was one of the greatest, he was one of the greatest men who ever touched the globe. He has explained more of the phenomena of life than all of the religious teachers. Write the name of Charles Darwin on the one hand and the name of every theologian who has ever lived on the other. And from that one name has come more light to the world than from all of those combined. His doctrine of evolution, his doctrine of the survival of the fittest, the doctrine of the origin of the species has removed every thinking mind from every thinking mind the last vestige of orthodox Christianity. So where does that leave us? Are we supposed to cower uh, underneath the onslaught of evolutionary science? Let me whet your appetite. This is one of the books I read. I mean, I commit it to you, but uh, in the beginning of the book, the author lists the ten basic foundations of evolutionary science. The thing, the peppered moth, Darwin's finches, things that perhaps you've heard of. They're all listed right there. The ten foundations of evolutionary science. And in the rest of the book, he goes on to demonstrate that every one of those is either misrepresented, false, or falsified. Ladies and gentlemen, I unequivocally believe that God created the heavens and the earth. But not because of this book. But because of this one. Here we pray. Our Father, I do pray that your people would find the great exhilaration in knowing. Not some more data that they can use to argue with that they can find great confidence in your word. That they will discover afresh 
that because of what you have done for us in Christ Jesus, we are safe and we are we are advantaged because we have residing within us the Holy Spirit who has also given us a book in which we can have utter confidence. Father, might this not make us more antagonistic, more sectarian. Might it make us more deliberate in our efforts to reach men and women who right now live underneath the mythological shadow of evolutionary science. Give us a greater heart instead of a greater animosity. We ask it, of course, for Jesus' sake.